Volume Two, Chapter Five of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Two, Chapter Five. There are many wonderful mixtures in the world which are all alike called love. George Eliot. These are troublesome times, Granny," said Di to Mrs. Courtney coming into her grandmother's room on a hot afternoon early in September. "'I can't get out, so you see I am reduced to coming and sitting with you.' "'And why are the times troublous, and why don't you go out of doors again?' "'I've been to reconnoitre,' said Di roughly, "'and the coast is not clear. He's sitting on the stairs again, as he did yesterday.' "'Lord Hemsworth? No, of course not. When does he ever do such things? The infant!' "'Oh, dear!' The infant was Lord Hemsworth's younger brother. "'And it is becoming so expensive, Granny. I keep on losing things. His complaint is complicated by kleptomania. He's got my two best evening handkerchiefs and my white fan already, and I can't find one of the gloves I wore at the picnic today. I dare not leave anything downstairs now. It is really very inconvenient.' "'Poor boy,' said Mrs. Courtney reflectively. "'How old is he?' "'Oh, he is quite sixteen, I believe. "'What with this anxiety and suspense as to how my primrose cotton will wash, "'which I am counting on to impress John with, I find life very wearing. "'Oh, Granny, we ought not to have come here at all, according to my ideas. "'But if we ever do again, I do beg and pray it may not be in the holidays. "'I wish I had not been so kind to him when we first arrived. "'I only wanted to show Lord Hemsworth he knew not be so unnecessarily elated at our coming here.' I wish I had not spent so many hours in the workshop with the boy and the white rats. The white rats did it, Granny. Interests in common are the really dangerous things, as you have often observed. Love me, love my rats. Poor boy, said Mrs. Courtney again. Make it as easy as you can for him, Di. Don't wound his pride. We leave tomorrow, and the Varelts are coming today. That will create a diversion. I have never known Madeline allow any man, or boy, or creeping child, attend to any one but herself if she is present. She will do her best to relieve you of him. How she will patronise you, Di, if she is anything like what she used to be! And in truth, when Madeline drove up to the house half an hour later, it was soon apparent that she was unaltered in essentials. Although she had been married several months, she was still the bride, the bride in every fold of her pretty travelling-gown, in her demure dignity and enjoyment of the situation. It was her first visit to her cousin Lady Hemsworth since her marriage, and her eyes brightened with real pleasure when that lady mentioned that Di was in the house, whom she had not seen since her wedding day. She was conscious that she had some of her best gowns with her. "'I have always been so fond of Di,' she said to Di's would-be mother-in-law. "'She was one of my bridesmaids. You remember Di, Henry?' turning with a model gesture to her husband. Sir Henry sucked his tea noisily off his moustache, and said he remembered Miss Tempest. "'Now do tell me,' said Madeline, as she unfastened her hat in her room, whether she had insisted on Di's accompanying her, "'is there a large party in the house? I always hate a large party to meet a bride.' "'There's really hardly any one,' said Di. "'I don't think you need be alarmed. The foresters left yesterday. There are Mr. Rivers and a Captain Vivian, friend of Lord Hemsworth, and Lord Hemsworth himself.' and a Mrs. Clifford, a widow. That's all. 
Oh, I've forgotten Mr. Lumley, the comic man. He's here. You may remember him. He always comes into a room either polkying or walking lame, and beats himself all over with a tambourine after dinner. How droll, said Madeline. Henry would like that. I must have him to stay with us some time. One is so glad of really amusing people, they make a party go off so much better. He does not black himself, does he? That nice Mr. Carnegie, who imitated the pig being killed, always did. I'm glad it's a small party, she continued, reverting to the previous topic, with a very moderate appearance of satisfaction. It is very thoughtful of Lady Hemsworth not to have a crowd to meet me. I dislike so being stared at when I am sent out first, so embarrassing every eye upon one, and I always flush up so. And now tell me, you dear thing, all about yourself. Fancy my not having seen you since my wedding. I don't know how we missed each other in London in June. I know I called twice, but Kensington is such miles away, and, and I have often longed to ask you how you thought the wedding went off. Perfectly. And you thought I looked well? Well for me, I mean. You looked particularly well. I thought it so unkind of Mother to cry. I would not let her come into my room when I was dressing, or indeed all that morning, for fear of her breaking down. But I had to go with her in the carriage, and she held my hand and cried all the way. Poor Mother always is so thoughtless. I did not cry myself, but I quite feared at one time I should flush. I was not flushed when I came in, was I? Not in the least. You looked your best. Several of the papers said so, said Madeline. Remarks on personal appearance are so vulgar, I think. The lovely bride, one paper called me. I dare say other girls don't mind that sort of thing being said, but it's just the kind of thing I dislike. And there was a drawing of me in my wedding gown in the ladies' pictorial. They simply would have it. I had to stand ready dressed the day before while they did it. And then my photograph was in one of the other papers. Did you see it? I don't think it is quite a nice idea, do you? So public. But they wrote so urgently, they said a photograph would oblige, and I had to send one in the end. I sometimes think, she continued reflectively, that I did not choose part of my trousseau altogether wisely, I think, with the summer before me, though I might have ventured on rather lighter colours. But, you see, I had to decide on everything in Lent when one's mind is turned to other things. I never wear any colour but violet in length. I never have since I was confirmed, and it puts one out for brighter colours. Things that look quite suitable after Easter seem to so gaudy before. Not sure what I should wear to-night. Wear that mauve and silver, said Di suddenly, and their eyes met. Madeleine looked away again instantly and broke into a little laugh. You dear thing, she said. I wish I had your memory for clothes. I remember now, though I had almost forgotten it, that the mauve brocade was brought in the morning you came to hear about my engagement. And do you remember, you quixotic old darling, how you wanted me to break it off? You were quite excited about it. I had not seen the diamonds then, interposed Di, with a faint blush at the remembrance of her own useless emotion. I am sure I never said anything about breaking it off after I had seen the two tiaras, or even hinted at throwing over that riviere. Madeleine looked puzzled. Whenever she did not quite understand what Di meant, she assumed the tone of gentle authority, which persons conscious of a reserved front seat, or possibly a leading part in the orchestra in the next world, naturally do assume in conversation with those whose future is less assured. "'I think marriage is too solemn a thing to make a joke of,' she said softly. "'And talking of marriage,' in a lowered tone, "'you would hardly believe, Di, the difference it makes, the way it widens one's influence. With men now such a responsibility. 
I always think a married woman can help young men so much. I find it so much easier now than before I was married to give conversation a graver turn, even at a ball. I feel I know what people really are almost at once. I've had such earnest talks in ballrooms, Di, and at dinner-parties, haven't you?' "'No,' said Di. "'I distrust a man who talks seriously over a pink ice the first time I meet him. If he is genuine, he is probably shallow, and the odds are he is not genuine, or he would not do it. I don't like religious flirtations, though I know they are the last new thing.' "'You always take a low view, Di,' said Madeleine regretfully. "'You always have.' and I suppose you always will. It does not make me less fond of you, but I am often sorry, when we talked together, to notice how unrefined your ideas are. Your mind seems to run on flirtations. I see things very differently. You wanted me to throw over Henry, though I had given him my solemn promise. And it had been in the papers, interposed I. Don't forget that. But, she added, rising, I was wrong. I ought never to have said a word on the subject. "'and there is the dressing-bell, so I will leave you to prepare for victory. "'I warn you, Mrs. Clifford has one gown, a cresser, which is bad to beat, "'a lemon satin with an emerald velvet train, but she may not put it on.' "'I never vibe with others in dress,' said Madeline. "'I think it shows such a want of good taste. "'Did she wear it last night?' "'She did. "'Oh, then she won't wear it again.' "'But Di had departed.' "'It change unchanged,' Di said to herself as she uncoiled her hair in her own room. "'I don't know what I expected of Madeline, yet I thought that somehow she would be different. But she isn't. How is it that some people can do things that one would be ashamed oneself even to think of, and yet keep a good opinion of themselves afterwards, and feel superior to others? It is the feeling superior that I envy. It must make the world such an easy place to live in. People with a good opinion of for themselves have such an immense pull in being able to do the most peculiar things without a qualm. It must be very pleasant to truly and honestly consider oneself better than others, and to believe that young men in white waistcoats hang upon one's words. Yes, Madeline is not changed, and I shall wait for dinner if I moralise any longer. And I brushed back her yellow hair, which was obliging enough to arrange itself in the most interesting little waves and ripples of its own accord without any trouble on her part. Di's hair was perhaps the thing of all others that womankind envied her most. It had the brightness of colouring and easy fascination of a child's. Even the most wily and painstaking curling-tongs could only produce on other less favoured heads a laboured imitation, which was seen to be an imitation. Madeline, as she sailed into the drawing-room in mauve and silver half an hour later, felt that her own rather colourless, elaborate fringe was not redeemed from mediocrity even by the diamonds mounting guard over it. The infant would willingly have bartered his immortal soul for one lock off Di's shining head. The hope that one small lock might be conceded to a last wild appeal, possibly upon his knees, sustained him through the evening, and he needed support. He had a rooted conviction that if only his mother had allowed him a new evening coat this half, if he'd only been more obviously in tails, Di might have smiled upon his devotion. He'd been moderately fond of his elder brother till now, but Lord Hemsworth's cable-patterned shooting-stockings and fair, well-defined moustache were in themselves enough to rouse the hatred of one whose own upper lip had only reached the stage when it suggested nothing so much as a reminiscence of treacle, and whose only pair of heather-stockings tarried long at the wash. 
but the infant had other grounds for nursing cane-like sentiment towards his rival. Had not Lord Hemsworth repeatedly called him in the actual presence of the adored one by the nickname of Trousers? The inference soubriquet among those of his contemporaries who valued him was Bags. But in ladies' society Lord Hemsworth was oft to soften the unrefinement of the name by modifying it to Trousers. The infant writhed under the absolutely groundless suspicion that his brother already had, or might at any moment, confide the original to die. And even if he did not, even if the horrible appellation never did transpire, Lord Hemsworth's society term was almost as appropriate. The name of Trousers was a death-blow to young romance. Sentiment withered in its presence. Years of devotion could not wipe out that odious word from her memory. He could see that it had set her against him. The mere sight of him was obviously painful to her sense of delicacy. She avoided him. She would marry Lord Hemsworth. In short, she would be the bride of another. Perhaps there was not within a radius of ten miles a more miserable creature than the infant, as he stood that evening before dinner, with folded arms, alone, aloof, by a pillar, looking daggers at any one who spoke to die. After dinner things did not go much better. There were round games, in which he joined with Byronic gloom, in order to sit near Di. But Mr. Lumley, the licensed buffoon of the party, dropped into his chair when he left it for a moment to get Di a footstool, and, when sternly requested to vacate it, only replied in fluent falsetto in the French tongue, Je voudrais, si vous coudrez, mais je ne canne pas. The infant controlled himself. He was outwardly calm but there was murder in his eye. Lord Hemsworth, sitting opposite shuffling the cart, looked up, and seeing the boy's white face, said good-naturedly, "'Come, Lumley, move up one. That is Trousers' place.' "'Oh, if Trousers wanted it to press his suit,' said Mr. Lumley, vaulting into the next place, "'anything to oblige a fellow-sufferer.' And Sir Henry neighed suddenly, as his manner was when amused, and the infant, clenching his hands under the table, felt there was nothing left to live for in this world, or the next, save only revenge. As the last evening came to an end, even Lord Hemsworth's cheerful spirits flagged a little. He let the infant press forward to light Di's candle, and hardly touched her hand after the infant had released his spasmodic clutch upon it. His clear, honest eyes met hers with the wistful chien soumis look in them, which he had learned to dread. She knew well enough, though she would not have known it had she cared for him, that he had only remained silent during the last few days, because he saw it was no good to speak. He had enough perception not to strike at cold or lukewarm iron. "'Why can't I like him?' she said to herself as she sat alone in her own room. "'I would rather like him than any one else. I do like him better, much better than any one I know, and yet I don't care a bit about him.' When he is not there, I always think I am going to care next time I see him. I wonder if I should mind if he fell in love with someone else. I dare say I should. I wish I could feel a little jealous. I tried to when he talked the whole afternoon to that lovely Lady Kitty. What a little treasure that girl is! I would marry her if I were a man. But it was no good. I knew he only did it because he was vexed with me. About—I forget what. Well, to-morrow I shall be at Overley. I shall really see it at last with my own eyes. 
Why, it is after twelve o'clock, it is to-morrow already. Certainly it does not pay to have a date in one's mind. Ever since the end of July I have been waiting for September the third, and it has not hurried up in consequence. Anyhow, here it is, at last. End of Volume 2, Chapter 5